Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. He's walking eastbound, walking eastbound. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Chippewa County was named for the historic Chippewa people, also known as the Ojibwe who long controlled the territory. The Ojibwe tribe had historically lived in what's now southern Canada, the northern Midwestern United States, and the northern plains. Known for their trademark birch bark canoes, copper mining, and maple syrup, they significantly shaped the region for several centuries. Chippewa County is located in northwest Wisconsin, approximately 100 miles east of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and has rich historical roots, offering museums, historic markers, and tours that often include a glimpse from the past. This beautiful rural Wisconsin county hosts the Chippewa County Forest, over 34,000 acres of forest land in the north part of the county. Some of the highest rated mountain bike, cross-country skiing, horseback riding, and ATV trails in Wisconsin are in the Chippewa County Forest. Utilizing the county forest for a fun and healthy day of outdoor recreation and capping that with food and refreshments at nearby establishments makes it for a great staycation. Chippewa County is home to nationally known Mason Shoes, the Jacob Lining Kugel Brewing Company and Chippewa Springs Water. You know, in, the, in this business, there are comedians, there are comics, and once in a while, rarely, somebody rises above and supersedes that and becomes a comic persona under themselves. I never cease to be amazed at the versatility and the wonderful work that Robin Williams does. Would you welcome him, please? Robin Williams. 63-year-old comedian Robin Williams committed suicide in California this year, and his wife later revealed that while the actor, who had previously battled substance abuse, was sober at the time of his death, he was struggling with the early stages of Parkinson's disease. People around this country, and for that matter around the world, are reacting tonight to the terrible news of the death of Robin Williams. A statement from his wife confirming his death alludes to his battle with depression, and now we know why. The 63-year-old actor and comedian died of an apparent suicide. He was among the most beloved contemporary American entertainers. The Tonight Show on NBC broadcasts its first episode in New York City in nearly 42 years, with its sixth permanent host, Jimmy Fallon. It's official, Jimmy Fallon will replace Jay Leno. After what seems like years of speculation, NBC confirmed today that Jay Leno will depart The Tonight Show in spring of 2014 after 20 Malaysia years. Airlines flight MH370 departed from Kuala Lumpur International Airport en route to the Beijing Capital International Airport in China with 39 passengers and crew members on board. Never to be seen again. Planes go up, planes go down. 
What planes don't do is just vanish off the face of the earth. We have breaking news. Malaysia Airlines confirms it has lost contact with a plane carrying 227 passengers. It seems to have vanished into the net. What do we tell the family members? What the year the was 2014. Chippewa Falls, a small historic city on the majestic Chippewa River in northwestern Wisconsin, is the county seat of Chippewa County and home to around 14,000 residents. Bill Gray was an investigator for the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office back then. It's a, it's a small community, but it's really a very nice community. Typical calls for us are going to be crashes. You know, your car deer crashes, your people going in the ditches during the winter time. Certain communities obviously have more of the high-profile, low-volume calls, and we would have uh, domestics and things like that. Uh, day shift is the one that gets hit the most with people discovering things that happened overnight, you know, a theft or whatever. And then your afternoon shifts, is, which uh, overlaps part of the night shift. Typically, like I said, three areas or three zones that uh, these deputies will cover, so... Brian Nikolajczyk was a lieutenant at the time for Chippewa Falls PD. We are hour and 20 minutes east of Minneapolis-St. Paul. We're two and a half hours west of Green Bay, and the vast majority, 90% of Chippewa County is rural. So, it, you know, it's it's a lot of the mundane, if, if there is that, uh, uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, your barking dog complaints, your uh, reckless driving, your uh, drunk driving, things of that nature. It's not a super high crime area. We have our, you know, our homicides, you know, probably average one every seven, eight, ten years, something to that effect. And so, for the most Start pretty laid back. Actually, we're a very, a very law enforcement friendly area. We have a great support from our community, even through all the uh, things that have happened nationally uh, in, in recent years. Uh, our our community uh, has always stuck by us, and so makes it a little bit easier on the officers to to know that the community has their back. The sheriff's office is located in Chippewa Falls and was your typical rural county sheriff's office. Chippewa County itself is about thirty miles east to west and about 32 miles, if I recall, to north to south. And the sheriff's department is, uh, I think at the time there was 24 sworn deputies. And our typical calls are usually (laughs) the same particular areas within the county, which is divided up into three to four sections, depending on how many deputies were on at one time, which was usually two. Uh, and then we would have uh, a road sergeant. Within the sheriff's office, we ha- we have the, the sheriff, the chief deputy, and then we would have two lieutenants, an investigator lieutenant, and then an investigator over the patrol division. And then we would have one sergeant for each shift. Bill grew up in the area and initially went into police sciences studies in college after high school, but he still had some growing up to do. He even had an instructor who told him he should probably look for another career. When I got out of high school, I went into the, you know police science back then. I did it for a semester, and then uh, I was like pretty juvenile in my, you know, just pretty, you know, not ready for law enforcement. And I was a whole 19 years old, and uh, one of my instructors told me that I should probably go look for some other uh, career because <laughs> it might not be a fit for me. 
Bill, who grew up in a broken home, really learned to be himself and to look out for himself. He was very independent. When that instructor told me that, I was A, upset, B, not surprised, and C, I was like, okay, um, enough is enough. I, I know I need some, you know, structure. And, and so I, I said, well, I looked at my mom and I told her I was going in the military. And so I went right into the military police at 19 years old, so 1984. And I was literally looking forward to basic training. I wanted to see what they had to offer, and I wanted to know that if I could get through basic, I could get through anything in life. Bill enlisted for six years, and he served as a military police officer in Korea, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and Puerto Rico. Bill took about 10 years after the military before he'd tell you that he finally got his act together and he decided to go into law enforcement. While he continued with the National Guard, he worked part-time as a deputy or officer for a number of small county and city agencies in the area. After getting some specialized investigations training in the military and getting deployed into combat after 9-11, he returned to Wisconsin and started working at the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office, working his way up from patrol to investigations. As an investigator, Bill would dress casual, khaki pants, a polo, a gun, and a badge. Chevy Impalas were often the vehicle of choice for agencies to use as unmarked squats. Not because they were necessarily the best vehicles, often just because they were really the cheapest full-size option for a fleet sedan. Chevrolet had marketed the Impala as law enforcement's economical replacement to the larger Ford Crown Victoria, which had been really their staple for years. Will was assigned a 2008 black four-door Chevy Impala. It had the basics, a few lights, siren, and a radio, no cage, no safety equipment. It was a typical investigator car. With an average high of 40 degrees and low of 25, November weather in Chippewa Falls is generally cool and breezy. They were expecting it to be a sunny day and cold with a high around 20 degrees. It was Friday, February 14th, 2014. I was in my office. It was about, uh, I think it was about 20 after 12 in the afternoon and I had just hung up the phone after talking to the agent from Homeland Security, who I knew through other uh, investigations I had worked with with him, and he called right back. And uh, he said that he needed my help or our help at the sheriff's office trying to find this 17-year-old juvenile. And uh, also that she was reported missing, not as a runaway because she had never run away before and she was living with her grandparents. And her grandparents noticed she was gone. And they also said, or this agent also said, the last time anybody knew, she was going to be meeting up with a Sharinder Garcha, who was from the United Kingdom. And apparently she met him online through an app uh, known at the time as Kick. I don't know if her grandparents found that information or how they, how they knew that, but the address that was given to me was only about five miles away from the sheriff's office. And I happened to be the only investigator available uh, at that time. And, you know, it's like super cold out and it's it's lunchtime and I was already late for lunch. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll no problem. I'll do what I can to find the girl. They were more interested in her than they were Sharinder. Sharinder was questioned by agents at the Florida airport upon entry to the United States. They asked him why he was visiting. Sharinder apparently told them he was there to visit a 17-year-old female. 
Authorities then seized Surrender's passport and he was driven to another location to be held until the next day to be then deported back to the UK. However, when they got to the holding point, there wasn't enough room there for Surrender, so he was given a one-day parole visa and taken to a hotel with the instructions to return to the airport the next day to be deported. Under U.S. immigration law, the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security has the discretion to grant parole to certain non-citizens to allow them to enter or temporarily remain in the United States. Surrender was instructed to return to the airport the next day. Shortly after their phone call, Bill received an email from Homeland Security. It had a photo and information on the missing 17-year-old female, as well as a passport photo and information on Surrender. He printed off the information and tried to find another officer to go with him, but the other investigator was tied up with something else. Bill really thought it was a long shot that Surrender and the girl would be at the apartment anyway, so he decided to respond there alone. It was 12.15 p.m. I went out to the the address, and as I was getting closer, I realized that that address has four apartments. It's one of our frequent flyer places, if you will, where we're there quite often. And there's two apartments that are up on the road and then two apartments that are around uh, back. And they didn't know which apartment it was or anything. Uh, it just uh, gave me the address. And uh, apparently, Sharinder had been in the U.S., that same year in January um, at that address. Now we found that out uh, obviously after I was hurt, that's how I learned why he was there to begin with. And uh, so that's when I, when I pulled into the driveway and saw Skinny working between two vehicles. Bill was plainclothed as usual, so he pulled out his neck badge over his coat so they could see he was law enforcement and he approached the vehicle. So as I'm heading toward the apartment and I realize, you know, that it's got four apartments, I'm, you know, thinking, well, <laughs> which one do we start with? Well, I, at the same time I'm thinking that, I see two vehicles in this gravel spot where they park, kind of in a V shape, and I see the hood is open on one, and I see this individual who's working on one of those cars kind of under the hood, and I'm thinking that could be the Surrender Garcha or... I mean, because the individual uh, looked like he was from somewhere else other than the United States. And uh, Sharinder apparently was half Pakistani and half Indian. So as I parked my unmarked squad on the east side of the, of the closest vehicle, I just casually walked up, took a look, realized it wasn't Sharinder. So I identified myself to the young man that was there. Turns out, it's uh, Eric Hansen who went by the name Skinny, apparently in the drug world. And he told me that his father owned the apartment building and that he would help me any way he could. And I showed him the photograph of Sharinder and then the photograph of Brianna. And I said I needed help finding these two individuals and asked him if he had seen them. And he said, you know, I've been here since I was born and we live right in the back of this apartment. He's, I've never seen those two. The apartment building contained four apartments. Apartments one and two faced the road, and three and four were on the north and west sides of the building. After talking with the man working on his car, Will started knocking on doors. 
Skinny follows me to the very first apartment, which was closest to us, uh, one of the two that's up by the road. And I open up the storm door and start knocking on the main door to the to the apartment. But I was standing off to the side because I always did, you know, for safety. And as I'm knocking, I'm announcing who I am. Again, figuring whoever's, Shrinder's not going to, if he's there, he's not coming out, you know, and he's not going to answer. And all of a sudden, the door opens about six to eight inches. It's pitch black. I can't see anything. And in my mind, I'm thinking it's the young lady who lives there. And she has been known to harbor runaways before. And she's uh, a drug user. So as I'm talking to whoever is behind the door, I'm telling them that, you know, who I am and that I'm with the sheriff's office and I just needed to speak with them. And then Skinny starts talking and he's talking to who he thinks is also the girl. And he's calling her name and says, hey, it's, you know, it's okay, just come on out. Well, a yellow lab kind of comes up to sniff me between the, the door and the frame and, and all of a sudden the door just started closing on the dog. And the dog backed up uh, and, and the door just eerily closed very slowly. I thought that was just really odd. Well, I knocked for, you know, I don't know, maybe a minute longer and, and Skinny's yelling or trying to get the young lady that lives there to come out and I'm talking and nobody's coming out. So <clears throat> I went to the next door to my right uh, again, which is up by the road. It's the only other one that's by the road. And I, I start knocking on that one. And as I'm knocking on that door, I hear somebody ask me if they could help me. And they're back to my, it's on my left side, where is the apartment I just had come from. And it was a, it was a heavy English accent. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up and Frankly, if he'd have had a gun at that point, I'd have been done, you know, but he was, he was very nice. And when I looked over, I knew it was him, but I asked him his name and he said, his name was Donnie. And I said, well, Donnie, you look an awful lot like this guy. I held up that piece of paper and he goes, yeah, that's me. And I said, well, why'd you say your name was Donnie? He said, well, nobody can remember Sharinder. So I just got nicknamed Donnie. Uh, by the people who live in this apartment. And I said, okay, have you seen this girl? And he said, yeah. He said, she came with me from Florida. And I said, explain that. And he said, well, when I met her in Florida, she told me she was going to commit suicide if I didn't bring her up to Wisconsin with me. So I said, you paid for her bus ticket, which by the way, was like a three-day bus trip to come here? And he said, yes. I said, okay. And I started to ask him some more questions and because he was in a, the only way I can describe what he was wearing is like those uh, jogging outfits that you kind of see a lot of the people from UK wear, you know, they've got the white stripes down the side of the sleeves. Yes, that's what he was wearing along with a a white t-shirt and he didn't have any shoes on. So he's just holding that storm door open while I'm talking. And he said, why don't you come on inside? He says, too cold. And I said, okay, well, I tell you what. I said, I'm not going to come all the way in, but I'll uh, I'll just step inside so we can shut the storm door behind me. And he, he was just super nice, re- respectful, wasn't trying to hide, you know. And 
you know, looking back, he, uh, I asked him if he was the one who opened the door initially and then shut it. He said he was. I asked him if anybody else was home. He said no. And as I'm standing inside the doorway with the storm door to my back so I could bail out if anything happens, Sherinder <clears throat> sat down at the table. And when he sat down, I noticed a white paring knife, white-handled paring knife on the table right next to him. And the table was a complete disaster, full of stuff. The apartment stunk, it was full of stuff. Uh, garbage can I could see was completely overflowing. It had stuff on the floor that they had just thrown at it. And it, it, you know, just your typical drug house, you know, as best I can, best, best way I can explain it. And when Sharinder sat down, I heard another deputy. He had radioed that he was getting out at a certain location. And the way our 911 system works, uh, I was familiar with it, and he I knew he was only, he was less than a mile down the road. So <clears throat> I got on the radio, and I, I told him, I said, hey, when you're done with whatever you're doing, can you come up and assist me at this, uh, at the Wasota apartment? And he said, yeah, I'll be right there. So probably just a couple minutes, and he showed up. And then that's when we both actually stepped inside the kitchen area. So when you step inside this residence, you're right in the kitchen, and off to your left is the living room. And then right off of the kitchen and living room is a hallway and you can see the bathroom. And then there was a, a couple bedrooms and a, I think a laundry room or something. So I couldn't see anything past the kitchen and the living room. I just, I'm watching Surrender, and Surrender all of a sudden is texting on his cell phone. And I said, who are you talking to? Or who are you chatting? And he goes, um, Brianna, the girl you're looking for. And I said, really? Well, I said, tell you what, why don't you just tell her to come home and you guys uh, need to get going or, or something, but don't tell them the police are here. Well, <laughs> first thing he did is send her a message that was, hey, Rihanna, the cops are here. They're looking for you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, thanks a lot for that. Uh, appreciate it. Um, where is she? And he said, well, she's in Eau Claire smoking meth with some dude that's missing half a leg. Now, when somebody tells you that, you pretty much can assume they're telling the truth. You know, you, it's hard for the, it's hard to just come up with some dude that's missing half a leg, you know. The more Bill talked to Sherinder, the more he gave Bill the impression that Sherinder was getting tired of the runaway and that their friendship was getting expensive. I said, let me get this straight. In the 31 days that you've been up in Chippewa County, She's already found somebody to smoke meth with in the city of Eau Claire, which is just over 60,000 people. And he's like, yep. And she stole $8,000 from me in the short time we've been here. And he goes, I'm, I'm turning around all the time and having to go to an ATM and draw money out. And she's using it to buy meth or smoke meth. And I said, okay, well, I said, you know, I need to find out where she is. If she, you know, you're saying she's still alive. You're chatting with her. Would you be willing to help us go track her down in Eau Claire? Can you point out the house that she's at? And he said, yeah, no problem. He goes, I'm so tired of her and her stuff and then stealing $8,000. She's nothing but a problem. I want her, you know, gone out of my life. And he goes, and I just want to go back to London or the UK. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I would really appreciate it. And as we're talking, all of a sudden, out of the dark, appears the female that is uh, 15 years old, I believe at that time, out of one of the back bedrooms. I, I thought you, you told me when I first got here, Surrender, that there was nobody else here. 
I said, there's no way to get into this apartment except through this door behind. And he, he goes, yeah, I forgot. I forgot, you know, just the normal lies. And I looked at, at, uh, the young lady and I said, Hey, what's going on? Why, you know, we've been in your apartment for like 15 minutes and you just decide to come out now. What's up? And, uh, I said, where's your mom? Well, she's working. And mom is a three time, uh, OWI recipient. Uh, and she's a bartender at a bar. And, uh, I said, uh, which bar is she at? TNC Tavern, which is in Chippewa County. And I said, okay, well, we're going to try to get a hold of her. And she goes, I lost her number. Or she goes, I don't know her number. And I said, well, that's no problem. I'll just have dispatch get a hold of TNC Tavern and we'll do it that way. And uh, I said, are you willing to allow me to just make a cursory search of the inside of your apartment to make sure that Brianna isn't here? Because I was told you weren't here. There was nobody else in this apartment. So are you hiding her in here somewhere? And she said, uh, no, no, no. But um, she goes, I'll let you search, but not that deputy that's with you, just you. And she goes, I want to shut the door to my bedroom first. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so uh, as I'm stepping into the hallway, I look to my right and left. There's a cat litter box that's overflowing. It was, it was just nasty, you know. And <clears throat> she makes a beeline for her bedroom. And I stepped right in behind her. Concerned for his and the other deputy's safety, Bill went after her. He followed her into the room and he stopped her from shutting the door. Inside the bedroom, the girl ran to the computer and shut it down. And I'm looking at all the psychedelic mushroom posters on the walls and bongs that are all over for smoking marijuana, for those who don't know what a bong is. And and uh, she, she was really upset with me. I mean, she had tears running down her face and her, ma- uh, because her, and her mascara was running, you know. And, and I said, uh, I don't care about the dope in your house. I don't care about the, the drug paraphernalia at this point. I said, I just need to find this girl. And I just want to make sure that she's not, you know, in this house and she's dead or something, you know. At this point, the only way Bill figured he would find Brianna was with Shrinder's help. Shrinder knew he was in trouble. He didn't want more trouble. He made that clear and he seemed very willing to help. Bill placed Shrinder in handcuffs, explained he was being detained until he received further instructions from Homeland Security, and he sat him down in the apartment. While waiting for the Homeland Security agent to call him back, Bill and the deputy continued to search the apartment to make sure the runaway wasn't there. And then, Bill's cell phone rang. It was the agent, and Bill stepped outside to take the call. I stepped outside to take that call, and I left the deputy that was with me with uh, Shrinder and, and this young female. And, uh, I let the uh, agent know <laughs> that I had Sharinder in custody and I, I had already put him in handcuffs. And he said, well, why did you put him in handcuffs? And I said, well, I'm acting as an agent of you guys when you request for me to come and find him. And he's been on the run from Homeland Security for 34 days. So I don't know, I don't know anything about this guy. So the agent I was talking to told me, take him out of handcuffs. And he said, if you're comfortable with that, and I said, well, he's been a perfect gentleman the entire time I've been here. Uh, he told me where Brianna is. He gave me this description of the guy that she's supposedly with. And he's willing to go to that place, point it out so that we can try to get her into custody and make sure she's okay. And uh, he said, okay, well, take him out of handcuffs and see if he'll go with you to the sheriff's office. Tell him he's not under arrest. We just need his help finding this girl and see if he'll interview, if he'll allow you to interview him once you get to the sheriff's office. 
Bill went back inside the residence to where Shrinder was seated, and he explained that as of that moment, Shrinder was no longer under arrest, but before he uncuffed him, Bill was going to pat him down. As Bill approached Shrinder, the deputy that was there helping told Bill that he had already searched him, said he didn't find anything. Bill then unhandcuffed Shrinder, and he asked him if he'd be willing to find himself a ride to the sheriff's office for further questioning, or would ride there with one of them. Shrinder said he was fine with riding with Bill to the sheriff's office, so he put his shoes on, stood up, and then asked if he could get something from his backpack. Shrinder was being cooperative, and at that point there was really no indication that he was a threat or a problem. He wasn't technically in custody anymore, and, and Bill could plainly see the backpack. They let Shrinder unzip his backpack and retrieve whatever it was he needed, and then he came back to the table. Shrinder now had a stocking cap on, so they figured that's what he took from the bag. Before they left the apartment, Bill told the female resident that he had seen several bongs in her bedroom and that she needed to destroy them before he left. She became upset and crying, accusing him of being a liar, saying that he told her she wouldn't get into trouble if they found drugs in the home. Bill simply explained to her that she needed to destroy the bongs and it would be over. The kitchen garbage was already overflowing, so Bill suggested she put the bongs in a garbage bag, take them outside, and smash them. Still crying, she reluctantly took him outside and smashed each of the bongs. Sharinder then followed with him outside and walked to Bill's squad. When we got outside, uh, my car was parked right there, which was an unmarked black Chevy Impala. It, it was kind of funny because my Impala was not meant for me. It was meant for another investigator, but he didn't want it because it had a laptop cradle in it. And, you know, he was like, I don't want that thing. And I said, what are you going to do with your laptop? And he said, oh, I'm just going to put it on the seat next to me. I said, well, good luck if you get in a crash because that thing's going to go flying around, hit you in the face, you know. No, I don't want it. So so our captain said, Gray, you want it? And I said, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Bill would later realize that the laptop stand likely helped save his life. So at that point, and keep in mind, he's already been searched once. But because he's going with me, I should have patted him down again. But it's very cold outside, and I wasn't thinking about patting him down. I'm, uh, you know, the deputy uh, that was with me, I actually trained. I was, uh, I was an FTO uh, field training officer, and he was one of the people I trained. And so I trusted, you know, that he did a good job. And and I'm sure he did, you know. So Shrinder jumped in the front seat, passenger side, and uh, I drove to the sheriff's office. With Sharinder in the front passenger seat, unhandcuffed, Bill drove him to the sheriff's office. Remember, now this was an unmarked squat, so other than a computer stand and a radio, there was no divider or anything in this car. We got to the sheriff's office. Sharinder was pretty chatty on the way, you know? He was a very nice guy, pretty funny, actually. And uh, when I got him to the sheriff's office, I parked in the, uh, it's like a cul-de-sac, you know, right by the sheriff's department and the courthouse. And I took my laptop out of the cradle and uh, I said, let's go inside and we'll do a quick interview and then we'll go to Eau Claire and see if we can find Brianna. Back at the office, Sherinder and Bill walked into the building and down to the lower main level interview room. And Bill had Sherinder sit down while he texted the agent for further instructions. It was Friday, the Homeland Security office was around four hours away, and the agent was having a hard time convincing his supervisors that they needed to send two agents to Chippewa County. 
Before Bill started interviewing Sherinder, he shut the interview room door for privacy, but he told Sherinder that he was still not under arrest and he was free to go and not answer any questions. Sherinder explained he didn't want any more trouble and he was willing to cooperate. During the interview, when asked why he was in the States, Sherinder said his father was wealthy and that he flew him wherever he wanted to go because he suffered from depression and his dad thought it would help him combat the depression. As the interview went on, Sherinder allowed Bill to search his cell phone. He found some recently deleted videos, but nothing indicating Sherinder was doing anything illegal. It had been about 45 minutes, and Bill still hadn't heard from the Homeland Security agent. At one point during the interview, Sherinder asked if he could go. He told Bill he would still help him find the missing girl who was somewhere in Eau Claire. Sherinder told Bill without his help, they would never find her. He said he didn't know the address, but he could direct them to the residence where she was at. After a few more minutes, Bill received a call from the Homeland Security agent. I had talked to the agent on the phone, and uh, he said, yeah, we're going to come up and get him. So let him know he's not free to go anymore. And uh, he said, we'll be up there in four hours. And uh, he said, meantime, see if he'll take you to that apartment where she's supposed to be hiding. When I went back uh, into the investigator uh, meeting room, it was kind of comical because he had everybody in there laughing. And, you know, I told him, hey, you know, you're no longer free to leave. He goes, yeah, I figured that. He said, I said, Homeland Security is going to come up. They're going to get you. And most likely they're just going to fly you back to the UK where you came from. Bill asked Sherinder if he was still willing to go help him find the missing girl. Sherinder said he would, again, indicating he just didn't want any more trouble. Deputies would tell Bill later that they sat down with Schrinder and all of them really thought he was a, a funny, nice guy. They said he seemed laid back, he was talkative, and they liked his heavy English accent. Bill then started looking for another officer to help take Sherinder to Eau Claire. Ultimately, I was able to get an undercover city police department guy to uh, drive us to Eau Claire. He was the drug investigator at the time for the city of Chippewa Falls. And so he had this unassuming van and Trinder was unhandcuffed the whole time. And uh, we drove there and it's, I kid you not, it's the only pink house in the entire area. <laughs> that's, that's what he picked out. And I went, really? Okay. The pink two-story building had one apartment upstairs and one down. Sherinder said she would be in the upstairs apartment, which was on the east side. We got him out of the car, out of the van, and, and I said, Sherinder, walk up, knock on the door, and just say, hey, it's Sherinder, you know, if, if you think she's in there. So it's one of those covered steps that goes up to this apartment. You know, it's wooden platform, you know, wall on, on, on your right side as you're walking up, and, and of course the house on your left side. So he gets upstairs, and rather than announce his presence, he just knocks, and he, 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 he listens for a little bit, and I'm, like, motioning him, say your name, you know? And uh, he said, hey, it's Surrender, and nothing. So he comes downstairs, and he goes, I heard a TV in there, and it shut off. And, or they turned it off or turned it down, and there was no vehicles in the, in the drive at all. So I said, go back up there and make sure if it's her, make sure you announce who you are a little louder. So he goes back up, knocks on the door, nothing. They decided to leave after that and take Sherinder back to the Chippewa County Jail. On their way back, Sherinder asked Bill if he would take him back to the apartment quick where he found him so he could get his backpack. 
Sharinder told Bill that the 17-year-old who was at the apartment had the missing girl's phone number and probably texted her when we left the apartment, warning her that the cops were coming to get her in Eau Claire. So he suggested that the missing girl had probably already gone back to the apartment to get her suitcase. Maybe they'd just find her there. As they arrived at the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office where Bill's squad was parked, the drug investigator dropped them off. They went back inside briefly, where Bill saw his partner and told them of the event so far. Bill asked him if he would come back with them to the first apartment to retrieve Sharinder's backpack and told them there may be a chance the missing girl might be there as well. Bill's partner told him he couldn't help. He was waiting for a female there at the office he was going to interview regarding another case. So Bill and Sharinder walked back outside to Bill's squad. When he got into my squad, he grabbed the laptop cradle and kind of twisted it like back and forth and I I thought it's in his way I mean when you have a laptop cradle in a small Chevy Impala that laptop cradle is like over the passenger's left leg so not much room so I figured he was just trying to get comfortable so I grabbed it and locked it into position Bill's laptop was still in the office, so he collapsed to the wings of the laptop stand, he straightened it, and then he locked it into position so Sharinder could have more room. Looking back now, Bill recognizes that may have been a mistake. As they drove back to the apartment, Bill kept thinking about the missing juvenile and the other 17-year-old female at the apartment who already wasn't happy with him about making her smash her bongs. He decided to call his lieutenant, 275, and ask him if he would back Bill up at the apartment in case he had any problems. Bill's radio number was 415. He also calls the local car to meet him there and asks the dispatch to have the Homeland Security agent call him. 415, area 3 car. 429, 415, go ahead. Can you meet me at Blue Ribbon Engraving, quick, please? 10-4. The Blue Ribbon Awards parking lot was just about a quarter mile from the apartment where he found Surrender. I just had a feeling that I didn't want to go there alone. So I pulled into that Blue Ribbon Awards parking lot. There was one car in the parking lot, but uh, I thought it was closed down already. And so I parked with the nose of my squad facing the road in this little parking lot and uh, put it in park. And all the windows are rolled up and everything And I'm because it's so cold. And uh, I thought, you know, the sheriff didn't want me to, to even, he told me he didn't agree with me even going on this little field trip. And he's like, I don't want you to do this. And I said, Sheriff, it's only going to take me about five minutes. We're in and we're out. You know, no big deal. And so he let me go. And uh, my lieutenant obviously knew what I was up to, but my lieutenant was on his way. And at the time, my lieutenant and I both lived in Kadat. And Kadat is about, is probably eight to 10 miles away from where we were at. And when I was talking to my lieutenant on, on my little issued flip phone cell phone, he said he was almost home. And we actually only lived like two miles apart. And he said, I'll turn around and head your way. But he goes, see if you can get the area squad in that area that you're at to come and help you. I said, okay, no problem. So I, I took the flip phone and I put it in my left hand and I grabbed the microphone, which was on the dash in front of me. And, and I uh, called for the area car, uh, which is known as the area three car. And what I didn't know was there was also another car 
in that area. And when I called the area car, uh, it happened to be uh, Randy Stearns, and Randy said, I'll be right there. Well, unknown to me, Randy was about five to six miles away from our location. So I hung up the mic on the dash, and then I put the flip phone back in my right hand. And uh, I just kept on the conversation with my lieutenant. While Bill stayed on the phone with his lieutenant, he was watching traffic to his left, and he was completely unaware that Sherinder had taken his seatbelt off. I'm looking to my left, and I'm just watching cars coming down the road. You know, it's, like I said, close to 4 o'clock in the evening, and all of a sudden, I just get slammed in the right side of my face. The flip phone goes flying, and I just, I was like dazed, you know, and and I'm like, what the heck was that? Somehow, Sherinder managed to remove his seatbelt, get out his hidden knife, and open it without Bill hearing it. Sherinder had lunged at Bill with a knife, and he stabbed him in the face. Bill's lieutenant heard everything on the open phone line. 275, Connie. 275, God. At this point, dispatch and the other cars are still trying to figure out what's going on, and dispatch closes the channel to emergency traffic only. 75 County. 275, go ahead on two county down units. F1 is restricted, restricted for emergency traffic only. 75 County on two. Go ahead. I don't know what you got going on there, but I'm going to respond 33 to that to the jurisdiction. 10 for. It's telling me 415 is on scene. I'm in route from 29 and XX ray. He had a uh, male suspect with him. 10 for 408. Break. County 415. Bill immediately went for his seatbelt so he could get out of the car. However, with no armrest or anything in between the two seats, Sharinder grabbed his right wrist and pinned it to his seat behind the seatbelt release so Bill couldn't take it. Believing he was going to die in that moment, and with only one arm free, Bill was trying to do anything he could to defend himself, wondering how long it was going to take before Sharinder cut a major artery and caused him to die. And I grabbed a hold of his face, and I, I started trying to pull out his uh, his left eye, and I'm like, because he somehow got spun around. I, I, I don't know how it happened, um, but he somehow got spun around, and I grabbed a hold of his, uh, I guess it would be his right eye, and I started pulling on it. But I was so grossed out by that that I, I wasn't committed to it. And he broke loose, and as soon as he broke loose, I grabbed a hold of the mic on the dash, and I keyed the mic and I said 415 county officer down I need help and I'm sure it wasn't that calm. Break. County 415. County 415. He was in the passenger seat kind of trying to clear his eye 
And I looked at him and said, dude, what are you doing, man? Settle down. I said, I've got a wife and kids. And I said it just that calmly. I, I had worked for four years in a locked unit at a, an area healthcare center where they put all the schizophrenics and stuff that are dangerous to all the rest of the residents, right? So I had some training and I just thought, maybe I can just talk this guy out. Well, that didn't work. I went to reach for the mic again when I saw him coming at me and I just kind of grabbed for the mic and he knocked, he hit my arm as hard as he could. Mic fell on the floor. Now I can't reach the mic. And he, he kind of, I, I, I don't know how he did it, but he got up over top of me and he got in between the back of my head and the headrest of the seat and was trying to, to slip the uh, uh, left side of my neck, my throat. Unknown to me, he had already slipped the right side of my throat. The body and brain do amazing things when you're in a fight or flight crisis. Bill was gravely injured at this point, but he felt no pain. And I will tell you, I didn't feel any of the cuts, none of them. And I, I had some major, I mean, both sides of my throat ended up being sliced. My jawbone on the left side was sliced when he was initially trying to get into my neck on the left side. But he was on, he was over top of me and I saw him switch hands with the knife. And I, so I tucked my, my uh, face down to my left, my left shoulder and I'm like hoping he can't get in there and I'm continuing to fight with him. And he stabbed me in the face trying to get to my throat and he cut a piece of flesh out of my, like the jawbone area because he was, he was like literally sawing trying to get into my throat. And um, then I gave up a little bit or something because I gave him enough room where he stuck the knife in my Adam's apple and then just pulled it all the way back to by my ear. And when he did that, he laid open my entire throat area. You know, I mean, your skin is tight, right? It's taut there. As soon as you slice the neck, I've seen it in person before. It just opened up, right? And some blood splattered on the window, which I saw later. I didn't see blood pouring out of me or anything. In fact, I didn't know how bad I was hurt. But I, I, when he slipped my throat wide open, I just got really, really uh, upset. And I realized at that point, for some reason, that my right hand was free. <laughs> so I reached down and got the seatbelt to un, un, unbuckle. And as this, like, ever so slowly going across my chest, I grabbed a hold of him with my left hand and I just shoved him as hard as I could right into the passenger seat. What Sherinder didn't know is while he was trying to cut Bill's throat, Bill got his seatbelt off. Bill says he'll never forget the sound of the seatbelt unclicking and sliding across his chest. At this point, Bill knew he had a chance. Bill shoved Sherinder with his left hand and arm as hard as he could and then somehow held him down with his left hand. When Sherinder fell off the laptop cradle, which he'd been kneeling on, he was positioned with his forehead against the backrest of the passenger seat, his knees on the front edge of the seat, feet on the floor, and his butt against the dash. I am now frantically trying to get my jacket. I have two layers of jackets, one of those fleece jacket underneath, and then my other hard shell over the top of that. And my hard shell had a drawstring on it, and the drawstring somehow got caught underneath my holster a little bit. So as I'm yanking on my jacket trying to get it up, I, I can only use my right hand because I'm holding him. I don't want to let go of him because I'm afraid if he gets back up, he's going to slice me some more, you know. So I finally got it unhooked and got it up over my holster and my gun. And my holster was a 
Blackhawk Serpa holster, the ones with the little, I think they call it a CQC holster, which has got that little finger paddle on it so that you can push that in and get your gun out. Well, that's what I that's what I had. And I had a full-size Sig Sauer P226 in a 40 caliber. I grabbed a hold of my gun. I'm holding him. He's facing, it's very weird because his butt was against the dash. His head was against the upper portion of the seat, feet on the floor, and he couldn't do anything. I don't know why. I don't know if he was like partially stuck under the laptop cradle or, or whatever, but I was strong enough to hold him there. And I'm a pretty skinny guy, you know, but when you're frantically fighting for your life, um, I've been through some training since then, and they say that your heart rate in a situation like that will go from your normal resting heart rate to over 220, 240 beats a minute in less than a second. So when you hear about those stories about moms and people lifting cars off their kids and whatnot, it's totally true. As Bill struggled to get his gun out, Surrender continued to try to break from Bill's grip to continue his attack. His jacket drawstring cord was under the gun holster, and Bill got the jacket off finally and then had to slide down to where he was almost under the steering wheel to get his gun out. He got a grip on his gun and he attempted to draw it, but his right hand was so covered in blood, it slipped off his gun. I grabbed a hold of my gun and I pulled and I didn't know it, but blood had been running down my neck this whole time on the right side and down my sleeve, through my jacket, and then covered my hand in blood. It was like grease when I grabbed a hold of the gun and it slipped off the gun. I remember looking at my hand in a split second. I looked at my hand going, why is it, why did it slip? And then I saw it looked like I dipped my hand in a can of red paint. And I just grabbed the gun again because there's no time to dilly-dally worrying about that, you know. So I just <laughs> grabbed the gun again, got it out, and I was so close to him, I couldn't shoot him in the side of the head. And he still was holding that knife. And I'm like, he's, he's just going to cut me if I don't shoot this guy, you know. And so I'm like, I was like laying almost flat with my feet and knees under the dash because that's the only way I could get my gun. And so I'm still holding him. And so I'm like face to face with him. Uh, My face is facing the side of his head. And so all I could see, and and you're probably going to laugh at me, but there's a movie called Act of Valor. And in that movie, one of the Navy SEALs goes into a room. And as soon as he opens the door, there's a guy standing right there. And so he's too close to shoot him with his rifle. So he slams him up against the wall with his rifle and pulls out his pistol and puts it under his jaw and pulls the trigger. That went through my mind that quick. And so I just stuck the gun right under his jaw and pulled the trigger. When Bill was finally able to draw his gun, he was in such an awkward position and so close to Schrinder's head, the only shot he had to end the attack was under Schrinder's jaw. Bill was literally lying next to Schrinder when he drew his gun and put the barrel under Schrinder's chin so the muzzle was upward and he pulled the trigger as fast as he could. Sherinder died immediately. When I pulled the trigger, the bullet never exited his head, which a lot of people think, oh my God, it blew the top of his head off, and uh, it didn't. It went in, I found out later through autopsy reports that it went in, uh, made, a, made a, like a, a right turn and ended up in the skull behind his ear. So anyway, uh, he stopped as quickly as if you walked over to a light switch and shut it off, he was done. Bill would find out later that when he pulled the trigger on the gun, Surrender tried to lurch backward, either to continue his attack or to get away from the gun. 
When he moved backwards, Bill's gun went from pointing under the chin to pointing right between Schrinder's eyes, killing him instantly. Because of the closeness of the slide to the bottom of the seat, when the gun went off, the slide moved backwards and was in the process of extracting the spent casing. But it bounced off the seat and moved back forward, jamming the spent casing in the upper portion of the breech block of the barrel. After the gun went off, Schrinder completely stopped any movement. Bill laid there for a few seconds, watching Schrinder. Bill's concern was he knew if he had any life left in him, Schrinder would have continued to attack him and kill him. Bill saw that he was not moving and Bill knew he was dead, so Bill sat up. Bill then saw his cell phone between his legs on the floor. He noticed his gun was jammed, and he looked at the gun in his left hand. It was then he noticed numerous defensive stab wounds to that hand. Bill decided that the gun should be left on the floorboard of the driver's side as evidence because they would take the gun from him anyway. Now, after such a traumatic event in his mind racing, Bill later recognized this probably wasn't a good tactical decision, and he knew it. But at the time, losing the amount of blood he was and not knowing how much he had lost or how much time he had left, it was the decision that he made. Bill knew Schrinder was dead, there was no doubt, and therefore he wasn't concerned about leaving the gun behind. This whole event, this assault, took place in about three to four minutes, although Bill said it felt like 15 minutes. Bill knew he needed to get help and needed help soon. Frankly, I was so happy that I was still alive and he was not going to hurt me again. I was so happy and so relieved that I was able to get outside my squad. I put my hand on my neck on the left side where I knew he sliced me uh, open and I, I got down on a knee and I started doing that rescue breathing I started doing that, calm myself down, because I thought to myself, if I don't calm down, my heart's going to keep pumping really fast, and it's going to shoot blood, you know, I'm going to lose my blood quicker. And uh, so once I was convinced I was calm enough to walk out to the road, I stood up, walked out to the road, and we're only talking probably 20 feet, but I walked out to the edge of the road, and so the badge that I had hanging outside my jacket, when I first went with Surrender, I left it out. In the fight, it got somehow tucked in my jacket. So when you testify in court as you know a, a deputy or whatever, they gave you those pocket badges. Well, that's all I was wearing uh, on a black string. So I pulled that out, and I'm like, it's a gold star badge, and I'm trying to flag down traffic. And four cars drove right past me. I think it was a couple cars in a truck drove right past me. And the weird thing is, one of them was my son's best friend at the time. And he knew me, but he didn't recognize me. And he said later that I was like covered with blood from head to toe. By the time a person, I guess their brain focuses on somebody that's covered in blood from head to toe, and then they're already, a, you know, however far down the road, they just continue on. Well, I mean, I was kind of getting disappointed because I knew I was running short of blood and I wasn't feeling weak yet, but I knew that was coming next. And all of a sudden, I see a white or silver pickup truck stop. And two guys got out and started running my way. So then I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I got to back up away from the road because the ambulance is going to need to get in here. They're going to try to, you know, these two guys that are running at me are going to need to work on me. <laughs> so I backed up. I backed up kind of in between the road and the squad, and I, and I, uh, I laid down. I got on my back, and I put my knees up in the air because... Through my military training and through law enforcement training, they always talk about if you don't want to go into shock, get your feet elevated. You know, get those feet elevated because there's so much blood in your legs 
so many veins and things that your heart is going to be, you know, in my situation, your heart's starving for blood and, you know, your, your, your body's starving for oxygen and stuff. So the only thing I could do was just put my knees up in the air. And I remember laying there and starting to shake because uh, I don't know if it was because the adrenaline was finally trying to exit my body and wear off or if it's because I'm freezing to death because it's 16 degrees below zero and no wind. It was just cold. And so the guys that are working on me, they didn't say anything, but I could see it in their face that, you know, uh, it wasn't good. Chip of County 911. Yes, we have an emergency at Blue Ribbon Awards on Highway J, 163. Yes. There's a man in the parking lot. It looked like he was fighting with somebody in his car, and he's got out of his car, and he's got blood all over his hands and face. and. He's kneeling in the parking lot, bleeding. Yeah, we got we got officers out there in the parking lot. I'm not sure if they're trying to take somebody into custody, but we do have officers out there, okay? There's no officers, and he just there. collapsed. Okay, we got an officer that's out in there in plain clothes. Hold on one moment. Okay. Hold on one moment, okay? okay. They have an officer in plain clothes. Maybe that's... Hold on one moment. Okay, there's another man stopping out on the road. Yeah, yeah, we got an officer out there in plain clothes. There might be two of them out there. Okay, hold on one moment. I'm going to just see if they need an ambulance, okay? Uh, I think just somebody does. Yes, sir. <laughs> in there, okay? Okay. Okay, ma'am? Yes. We got an officer out there now. Yes, we Yes. Okay, yeah, we do have a plain clothes investigator out there with a male subject, so... He sounded, it's, I sounded like I heard a gunshot. And he's holding his neck where he's bleeding. Okay, who's... There's a man on the ground. I don't know if it's an officer or not. The other office, the sheriff's marked car is here now. Okay, hold on. Okay, hold on one moment. Okay. Dispatch was still trying to figure out what's going on at the scene. Was the suspect the injured one? Was Bill the injured one? Who was shot? Ma'am? Yes. Is there another person out there too, another male? I don't see? see anybody else, but I can't see inside the car. Okay, I'm the sheriff's checking inside the car. Okay. There must be another person in the car. The sheriff's pulling his gun and opening this side door. Okay. Okay, just stay inside the business there, okay? Okay, okay. we took towels out. My boss is here. She took towels out for him. And okay. There, okay. There's several uh, other people stopped out there helping. Okay. Yeah, just stay inside the business there, be okay? Okay, Thanks thank you. Again. All right, yeah, bye-bye. Hello? Yes, send an ambulance right away to uh, Blue Ribbons on Shea. Officers down. Okay, hold on a second, please. responding EMS. With all the chaos and everyone trying to figure out what was going on, officers responding are still thinking at this time the suspect did the shooting and he may be at large. When officers arrived, Bill told them he killed the guy. The guy's in his squad. The guy tried to kill him. But looking over, nobody could see Shurinder in the car because he was slumped in the passenger seat out of sight. The next thing I know, a lady from the inside of the business comes out and she's throwing towels at them. <laughs> the comical thing was the guy that was on my on my right side was like, I don't have anything to put on his neck. I just got these gloves because they had just come from work. 
And uh, the, the other guy goes, just put them on there <laughs> to stop the bleeding, dirty or not, you know. And, and uh, so anyway, then the gal from inside started bringing towels out and they were using that. And I remember my uh, my chief deputy showing up. I remember the sheriff showing up. And when the chief deputy got there, the guy on my left pulled the towel away from my neck and just looked at it. And I've seen two people in my life that had their necks slit wide open. One was by accident, and the other one was on purpose by a guy that wanted suicide. And so I've seen into somebody's neck, and it, and it was just gross, you know? I mean, it was like, how is this guy even still alive? And uh, when he looked at my chief deputy, I was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> I know it ain't good, but I, I still, you know, I'm all right. I'm still, I'm still fighting. So, so then the, the sheriff gets there, and he was... He looked pretty frantic, you know, and he's looking at me and everybody assumes because I don't have a gun in my holster that the guy shot me in the neck because that's what the lady told him too when she was talking to dispatch. You know, I heard a gunshot or what sounded like a gunshot and uh, he this guy, he's walking out and he's holding his neck. And so then I hear these guys arguing when the ambulance got there, I hear them kind of like, well, should we put him in a chair or should we, should we put him on the stretcher? Uh, what should we do? And and I looked over at him and I'm like, you guys, um, I can I can stand up and walk to the gurney. And they're like, you can? And I said, yeah. They walked Bill to the ambulance and took off. On the way to the hospital, Bill asked his paramedic friend about his wife, Sarah. And on the way to the hospital, I remember looking at him and saying, they, they were all like pretty frantic trying to get gauze pads on my neck and stuff. And I, I just looked up at, at uh, my buddy and, and I said, has anybody called my wife that you know of yet? Because she worked at a daycare center, which was right up by the hospital, which is only like a mile and a half away from where it happened. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, no, I, I don't think so, Bill. And I said, can you call her and just let her know what happened and that I'm on the way to mail? And he said, uh, well, it's policy, but yeah, I'll give her a call. So he called and there was some confusion when he got the first person on the phone and what was going on, you know. Well, when I heard my wife's voice and Kevin was talking to her, the ambulance guy, I, I just kind of loudly said, I'm okay, Sarah. Uh, and uh, that was all I said, because I knew my wife well enough to know that if I said I was okay, that you know she'd be fine and she'd calm down and be able to drive to the hospital no problem well as it turned out she did think that way but her sister who also works at the same daycare said hey you're in no condition to drive i'll drive you there let's go the sheriff then went to their home he picked up bill and sarah's youngest daughter who was 12 at the time and drove her to the hospital bill's son adam was on his way back home that night with some other students from the department of corrections training school in wisconsin I was in Madison, and on Friday, they released us a little early. So I was actually carpooling for the guy and another girl that were in my class, and they both were from Stanley, and I was from Kadat, so we pretty much just carpooled back and forth. So I was in the back of his truck, and I was listening to my phone, you know, some music or whatever, and they were driving, and it was, you know, storm out, and we were just going out of Madison on the highway when um, I got this phone you know, phone call. I didn't recognize the number, and I'm like, I was just gonna let it ring, and then I was like, now nah, answer it. So I answered it, my mom, and I immediately told, you know, send something was wrong by the tone in her voice, and she was telling me, um, she's like, hey, where are you right now? I said, well, we just, you know, on the outskirts of Madison, heading back, 
and she goes, okay. She goes, well, your dad was in, in an incident, um, and he he's okay, but he got stabbed, and you know the suspect is obviously deceased. And that I was like, I was like so put off by that, you know. So after she told me that, everything just kind of like I just zoned out of everything. And the first thing I asked her, I said, well, are his eyes okay? Can he still see? And she said yes. And at that point, she didn't even tell me he got stabbed in the face. She just said he was involved in this and he got stabbed. And I'm like, okay, well, my biggest fear is, is losing my eyesight. So that was like right away what I thought. And he goes, and, you know, she told me, she said, yes, he's fine. Um, he is uh, in surgery right now. Um, so well, the sheriff in Chippecone at the time, my mom told me that he stopped by. He picked up Ella, my little sister, when we were living in that. And she said, whenever you get home, you know, don't speed. It's nothing, you know, you don't have to, you know, come here. She's like, just, just get here. I said, okay. So I got off the phone and, um, Nathan Sampusky, the guy in my class, he said, what's up? And I said, well, I, I like, I didn't even know what to say. I was like, so overwhelmed. And I said, well, my dad, he's involved in the and he got stabbed. And so he was like, okay. He didn't really know, you know, obviously what was going on. I didn't give him a lot of info. I was just kind of like searching for the right words to say. And I'm like, yeah, and then I'm like, okay, I'm four hours away on the highway, you know, and I'm not driving. And I mean, now looking back at it, it was better that I wasn't driving because I was just... Lieutenant Brian Nikolajczyk recalled what he saw as he arrived on scene shortly after Bill was transported. There's a, a, a man there with a hole basically right between his eyes, blood everywhere, blood all over the car, uh, blood uh, from the car down to the road. Uh, you could see where somebody, uh, I think it was a passerby, had pulled over and, and basically applied pressure to him and, and, and all that. Clothing was laying there. Um, you know, so you knew something substantial had happened. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that Bill was able to draw his weapon, turn his body, uh, and, 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 and fire, um, it was, you know, nothing short of a miracle because he had his seatbelt on the top of it. So he was, you know, he was fighting the seatbelt, fighting his positioning in the car. Uh, all this person had a knife, so all they had to do was just turn their body and start slashing, stabbing. And, uh, you know, Bill suffered countless injuries to his face, his neck, his chest, his arms, his hands. You know, he's trying to push this guy back, and I think he was just so caught off guard that by the time you realize it's happening, he's already, you know, got a dozen holes in him and slashes on him, and, and, and he doesn't even know what's happening yet, you know. And when he finally did figure it out obviously you know his training kicked in um, and did his best to unholster and turn and protect himself and was able to basically do a close contact shot uh, in the vehicle there which you know ended that person's life immediately but uh, you know then Bill's left with how, how bad am I and once he got out of the vehicle uh, and could assess himself I think that's when he realized I'm, I'm in trouble. After completing five and a half hours of surgery to repair Bill's injuries, doctors repaired 14 stab wounds, eight to Bill's face and throat, and six to his left hand. I was still in my DOC uniform. I just threw my bags in the front door, got in my car, and started driving. And I got down there, and it was kind of a dead parking lot. I'm like, okay. So then I walked in, and lobby was empty. It was quiet, and there was one lady at the desk. And I walked up, and I said, um, officer came in earlier he was in you know stab involved in altercation he's my dad i said where is everybody and she's kind of like um she goes well hold on she was just stay here i'm gonna go in the back quick i'll get somebody you know 
obviously for safety issues, they want to verify people coming in. So doors opened and my, it was my mom and my younger um, cousin Jacob and they followed me back into a big kind of waiting room and like the thing was packed. I mean, officers everywhere and I'm like, and my little sister Ella, she's breaking down. She's in between two vending machines crying her eyes out. I'm talking to my mom, my grandma, my aunt and my mom was like, okay. And my mom handled it really well. I know she kind of gets, you know, really freaked out and overwhelmed pretty quickly, but she was more or less just kind of she was the one keeping everybody else, you know, I wouldn't say emotionally in check, but, you know, I don't like to get emotional around anybody. So, I, I mean, I was okay at the time, and I'm like, he's in the middle of, you know, stitching him up, whatever. I didn't get to see him, but my mom says, I'm just going to stay here. Why don't you take Ella home? And I'm like, okay, so I took Ella. And then uh, that Saturday morning, you know, we woke up and went to the hospital, you know, and I finally got to see him in the waiting room, and that was just... I mean, I like to think that, you know, I just, I really don't get emotional, emotional, but it was just something like me and my dad are just, we're like two peas in a pot connected. Like he's just, I mean, we do everything, try to do everything together and there he is, you know, and I obviously got emotional, but he was, uh, his left hand was just looked like he was, had a ball of snow in his hand, you know, it was all wrapped up and his face was pretty swollen and then the stitching, you know, and whatnot. And I was just kind of like, you know, and he was real, like super, super, I mean, chill and just kind of like, yeah. and then I started to get, and then he's like, Oh, don't, don't cry. Da, da, da. And I'm just like, you know, I'm like, I don't know what I'm like, dude. I, I, <laughs> Bill spent the next five days in the hospital recovering. Investigators from the Chippewa County Sheriff's office, Homeland security, an agent with the FBI and Wisconsin's Division of Criminal Investigations interviewed the 17-year-old and her mother at the apartment where Bill found Sharindra at. They were also able to locate and return the missing girl to her family in Florida safely. TV shows like Law & Order often show officers getting into shootings, and then they show them going back to work the next case, just another day at the office. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth in most cases. Many, many officers involved in shootings never return to work. That stress of taking another life, the aftermath of the incident, the media coverage, the armchair quarterbacking from news and government leaders, the stress of possibly losing everything, of being sued, being charged criminally and going to prison. Police officers are forced to make split-second decisions and judgments in circumstances that are tense, that are uncertain, and are rapidly evolving. Split-second decisions on what amount of force is necessary in any particular situation. This is where their training kicks in, good or bad. When trained properly and regularly, the training kicks in and the officer is able to handle the incident and stay safe or stay alive in Bill's case. Many officers have been hurt or killed because they didn't follow their training to protect themselves. They hesitated and second-guessed themselves because of fear, not fear of the situation, the fear of becoming the next big news story. When you're fighting for your life, that's the last thing you should have to be worried about. As much as I knew I was, it was a justified shooting, I still had a little bit of thought in my head that what if somebody doesn't believe me, you know, that this is the way it happened. And if you remember the Ferguson incident, was also in 2014. 
tempers flare on the streets of Ferguson for a second night of unrest over the death of Michael Brown. Police in riot gear, facing off with protesters, firing tear gas canisters, yelling at them to move. So that was going on. And then a, a chief of police who was a friend of mine who actually left the sheriff's office to go to the small agency and be the chief had just shot a lady that same day that was trying to hit him with a hatchet or a, a machete. And I, it was just a bad time, you know, to for a law enforcement officer to, to just try to protect his own life and get home. Some things learned later through the investigation. Sharinder was a 20-year-old construction worker that, according to his parents, had come to the U.S. looking for construction work. Sharinder was 5'10 or so, and he was about 180 to 190 pounds. Bill was 49 years old at the time. He was 6'1", and he weighed 175 pounds. On his way to Chippewa County, Wisconsin, with the missing juvenile, he told her he was never going back to the U.K., and if law enforcement tried to arrest him, he would force them to kill him. During an interview with the missing girl, she stated that Sharinder bought the knife he stabbed Bill with in Florida before boarding the Greyhound bus. So why attempt to kill a law enforcement officer when the worst thing that was going to happen was he was going to be deported? That's a great question, and no one knows. Someone had told Bill they found medical paperwork in the apartment, which stated that Sharinder suffered from a couple mental disorders, which may have been the cause of the attack. The autopsy revealed no drugs or alcohol in Schrinder's system. Nobody knows why he did what he did, and we will never get an answer to that question. Also, nobody knows where or when he hid the knife on him. That will always be a question as well. The first lesson is to make sure that even when somebody else tells you that they've searched that person, to search him again. and. He was actually searched by one of the detectives that was upstairs as well. So he was searched twice. But if, uh, if a subject is going in your squad, it's your life, search. You're not going to hurt anybody's feelings, just search. No matter how long you've been with your agency, don't get complacent. Don't let your guard down. Always, always assume that the person you're dealing with will try and harm you in some way when you least expect it. Cops are all on guard with a person who is violent or agitated or showing aggression. But what about the soft-spoken, friendly ones? For the officers listening, always be mentally prepared for this to happen. Don't become complacent. I became complacent because this guy put me at ease. They call it an ambush for a reason. It's because you're not expecting it. And my whole thought process that whole day was... Not, not what it should be. You know, uh, I assume that this guy's on the run for 34 days. Why would he answer the door? This is, you know, this is stupid. But I'll go check and I'll, I'll go through the motions and make sure that that girl's not there. Maybe she'll answer the door, but, uh, you know, whatever. So I had that thought through my, my head the whole day, uh, the whole time I was with him. Uh, he was very nice. He was told, told us everything that we wanted to hear. He just completely lulled me into a, a sense of, of security that I shouldn't have had. Bill had surrendered with him for about three and a half hours that day, and he didn't have any issues with him. Then, without warning, when they were alone, Surrender attacked him. As a cop, you gotta be prepared. You gotta be on guard all the time, even with those attempting to befriend you, those that are being nice to you. It's always an eye-opener uh, at you know, potentially somebody else's peril that you end up realizing that, you know, it, yeah, we live in a great area, and yeah, we have good people around here, but bad things 
still happen and you always have to be on guard for that and you know again i think our training just how we train changed you know because it just brought to light how quickly something can happen you know that check and double check you know uh, when you pat them down you pat them down again every time you get in that squad no matter how long you're outside of it you pat them down again somebody hands somebody off and we train that but do you do it um and, and now they do it right they they know okay if i'm taking somebody from you uh yep you're the sheriff but i'm still going to pat them down no offense to to, to, to you but uh, if you miss something uh I, you know yep you might be embarrassed but at least i'm going to survive and uh and, and so that that again was an eye-opener for for everybody here uh you know not only the city but the county the neighboring agencies as as bill's told his story uh, multiple times to, to different agencies you know it's it uh, everybody can put themselves in a spot and everybody knows that they probably did something similar at some point in their career and uh yep that won't happen again bill's last lesson learned and maybe one of the most important ones and what he teaches other cops is no matter how old you are or the size disadvantage you can survive an attack bill's will to survive was much greater than surrender's surrender underestimated him and bill never gave up bill knew where his gun was and as long as he still had the use of his arms and hands he was gonna get it bill teaches to keep the suspect busy if they have to focus on all the things that you're doing or saying, then they can't focus on their aiming point. They can't focus on their attack. Bill made a full recovery. Now, many cops wouldn't have come back from a traumatic incident like this. Many questioned Bill going back to work. They suggested, you survived, get out, find something else to do. I had people tell me that, that, you know, Bill, just take the duty disability and, and Go home and do something you enjoy. And I'm screaming in my head, this is what I enjoy. Every single officer at some point had to come to the realization when they were applying to be a policeman or going through school that I can get hurt in this line of work. But yet we still, in most cases, raised our right hand and swore an oath to protect the citizens of the United States and the community that you work in and said, I know I can get hurt, but I'm still gonna go do this job. For me, it was, I never said to myself, when I raise my hand, I'm gonna become a police officer and I'm gonna swear that I'm gonna protect everybody, including myself, but if I get hurt, I'm gonna quit. I've always thought, well, if bad people in this world that wanna cause harm to police officers, if they thought to themselves, man, if I can just hurt that officer, that officer will quit and go away and I won't have to deal with that one anymore. Well, then the bad people in this world would win. So I was sitting on the, you know, on my couch or laying on my couch trying to get my bravado back, you know, cause I, I did lose it for a while. Uh, I was laying on the couch and I, I just, I kept thinking what's gonna happen if another officer out there gets hurt and I could have been with him. How am I gonna feel? How am I gonna feel by not going back to work just to, in my, in my mind, you know, because I used to watch people getting benefit, you know, in the drug unit, especially there's people are getting benefits they don't deserve. They're getting handouts they don't deserve. Well, if I know mentally and physically I can go back to work and I don't, I'm letting my agency down. I'm letting all the people in the sheriff's office that work there that heard the incident, like dispatchers, I can't do anything about it except try to help you over the radio, get ambulance there and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm just letting everybody down, but more so myself. 
I tell people all the time in, in law enforcement agencies that I've gone around and I've talked to um, because somebody invited me in, I just tell them, look, you got hurt, so what? You're good. If you can, if you, I mean, if your injuries aren't to the point where you, you got really bad injuries where you can't work, that's, that's one thing. But if you can get back to work, get back to work and you'll be, you'll be much happier for it. It's what you like to do then, you know, and the sheriff even told me when I came back in, I came back in uh, and sat in an investigator meeting long before I even went back to work. I wanted to keep up on stuff, but more so I wanted to be around the guys that I, that I cherish, you know, my brothers that, uh, that I work with every day. So um, the sheriff said, just by me coming in that first time and joking around and stuff and saying I was coming back to work, um, that helped a lot of people. Even with Bill's positive attitude and need to go back to work, he did have some struggles. A year and a half later, I ended up having a panic attack in front of 115 coppers that I was talking to. Didn't know what it was. My wife ended up taking me home in, and I, as I was in the back seat of the car with a jacket over my head trying not to throw up or, uh, you know, it was just, I was like, what is going on? You know, it was terrible. And then after I had that first one, then I started having many more and eventually it turned into panic disorder. And panic disorder, of course, is the fear of having a panic attack. <laughs> so it just never stops, right? Uh, eventually I, I, I found a, uh, I was actually at a conference, an anti-terrorism conference and a doctor was up speaking and it turns out he's a psychiatrist in Eau Claire. And I was like, I was so pumped by that guy. And, uh, I, I, I as soon as he got off stage, I left the arena and went outside and talked to him in the hallway. And he said, here's my card. You come and see me. We'll make sure we make time for you. And, uh, I, I talked with him. Uh, ultimately he did put me on uh, a medication called Effexor. That stuff works like a charm for me. It doesn't make me groggy, nothing. It just, I, I get up, go to work, and I'm just fine. And then once I got the dose right, I no longer have panic attacks. And I, I tried doing it without medicine. I researched every YouTube video I could find, and, and uh, I tried it, but it just never worked. It just kept getting worse and in order for me to hold my job, you know. And at that time, I, I had just gotten hired as a special agent with Wisconsin's Alcohol and Tobacco Enforcement. And I had a panic attack the very first day I met my boss's boss. My very first day of work, ended up in an ambulance in, in a Madison hospital. And I said, screw this, I am not going through this and I'm not losing my job and I'm not sitting at home like a vegetable, you know, or something. So um, I, got, I got help from the VA and then I got help from that doctor and, and the rest was history. When you're struggling with the aftermath of an incident like this, when you're struggling with PTSD, it's the stronger person who knows he needs the help. Bill was strong enough to ask for help, and he's doing very well today. His son also continues to work in law enforcement as well. This is another great example of survival, how staying positive, never giving up, and relying on their training can help our officers survive an attack. It's also another example of the incredible risks our men and women serving our communities take every day to help ensure our communities and our families are safe. Another example of the sacrifices their families also make in supporting their calling. Your local law enforcement, your local cops, your local deputies, your state troopers, they're your true local heroes in every sense of the word. The great work they do should be that constant reminder that a few bad cops don't represent over 800,000 cops nationwide. 
800,000 amazing men and women willing to literally risk everything while patrolling our communities day and night. Bill does public speaking for private companies and law enforcement, covering officer safety, awareness, and human trafficking. One of his mottos is, if you don't shoot them where it matters, it won't matter. If you're interested in learning more, contact Bill at cco439 at yahoo.com. His email is in the notes. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or emotional distress due to mental health challenges, help is available 24-7 from the National Suicide and Crisis Prevention Lifeline by calling 988 on your cell phone or 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Help is just a phone call away. That information is also in our notes. If you know a fallen officer story or a survivor story that you think needs to be told, please contact us at the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.